0: How many of you know the name Bob Ross? Bob Ross. He was the painter uh, that had the show on, I think it was on PBS when I was growing up, and uh, he had the big hair. He had a very soft, soothing voice, and people would watch episodes of this this show, The Joy of Painting, and uh, he would, in 30 minutes transform a blank canvas into some beautiful uh, scene, uh, usually with mountains and trees and maybe some water, and and uh, it was amazing just to watch his skill in painting, uh, and then he just had a way about him that was just, just, I don't know, soothing, you know? If you couldn't sleep at night, put Bob Ross on and you're gone in like five minutes, you know? Curious, this has nothing to do with the message, by the way, but... Uh, Uh, I read somewhere that he was actually a drill sergeant in the military previously and got so sick and tired of having to yell at people, he decided that he would never yell at people again when he got out of the military. And, he, yeah, he seemed to have uh, done that pretty well. Um, But I bring him up because one of the things he would often include in his paintings, uh, usually when he was getting kind of close to the end... He would sketch in an old barn of some sort, and he had this little technique that he would do, and he had this painting knife that he would actually, you know, he would put the colors on there, and, and if you've ever watched him, you know how he did it, and he would say, I get a little titanium white, a little alizarin crimson, and you know, he would do all this stuff, and then just, and there's a barn. It's like, Wow. And it was really interesting that just adding that one little piece, that one little image in there, uh, really just kind of made the painting pop, made it a little more interesting. And there's, there's just something very iconic about that that image of an old barn. Have you ever been driving down the road and you've seen a nice, pretty barn before? Even if you're a city slicker, you see that scene and there's the barn surrounded by the fields and there's just, there's just something beautiful about that that we appreciate. And while we all appreciate the look of a pretty barn, what good is the pretty barn if the fields around it are full of barren soil and rotting crops? A barn is where the supplies are kept, it's where the equipment's maintained, maybe where the harvest is stored for a while. It's where the farmhands come, perhaps in the morning, to meet with their boss and get their instructions for the day. And there is a good deal of work that takes place in and around the barn, but the work of sowing and reaping, actually producing crops, takes place not inside the barn, but outside the barn in the fields. I read a quote recently um, having to deal with this idea as it relates to the church itself and our mission of reaching the world with the gospel. For this reason, the church membership should not be considered the field, but the force. Consequently, the entire program of the church should be geared to training and challenging its force to go out into the field and to spread the gospel of Christ. And in Luke chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, we find that that's exactly what Jesus told His disciples to do. He said, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that He would send forth laborers into His harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs, Among wolves. The laborers in the spiritual fields have to be sent forth into the fields. And we who know Christ as our Savior, Christians, disciples of Jesus, we are those laborers. And while God has commanded us to assemble regularly, He has also commanded us to go and preach the gospel. As we are going, we are to be sharing the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sin. It's good for us to spend time together in the barn, as it were. But we must get out into the fields if we are going to reap a harvest. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider the truth of your word today... As we think about the example and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I want to ask that you would be our teacher and show us, Lord, what we need to know. Give us the understanding of it. And Lord, that we would choose to obey and put it into practice in our lives. Help us to have a true compassion for the lost and a desire to see souls saved for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several truths from these two verses that we're going to notice together today. First of all, notice with me what Jesus says about the Lord of the harvest in these verses. Again, in verse number two, he said, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Some important words there, those pronouns, he and his, are very, very important in understanding what Jesus is is talking about here. Behind this instruction that Jesus gave is an understanding that the harvest field belongs to the Lord, to God. The harvest that he's referring to is not a physical crop like wheat or corn, but it's a harvest of souls. And what Jesus is saying here is that all of the fields and all of the souls and all of the harvest belongs to God Almighty. It is His harvest. And therefore, He is the one who sends forth laborers into His harvest. We understand this. Just down the road from us here, there is a uh, uh, a farm that uh, is worked pretty regularly. Most recently, they uh, they had it uh, sown with cotton, and uh, we got to watch as they were harvesting some of that. And I didn't grow up on a farm, so I'm still very much fascinated by a lot of the techniques and the equipment and different things. And uh, But th- there's one thing I do know that I can appreciate those fields, but they're not my fields. I mean, if I were to show up there with my little tiller and, you know, mark off a patch and, and uh, break it up and you know, put some tomato plants out or whatever, uh, some people's probably going to ask some questions. What are you doing? This is not your field. You can't do that. I've got plans for this. Maybe they're going to come back very soon and plant another crop. But uh, we understand the concept that the farmer has his fields. And if he doesn't own them, he at least secures permission to be able to uh, work those fields. They belong to him. And I know this seems very basic, but we need to understand that when it comes to the spiritual harvest, God Almighty is the Lord of the harvest. It's not my field, it's not your field, it's God's field. Sometimes churches get a uh, kind of a, a spirit of maybe competition, you might want to call it, between them, and, and they begin to uh, kind of squabble with one another if they, they cross over into other people's territory. I remember back in the days that I was a bus captain, we sometimes would get a call from another church, hey, I saw your church bus in this neighborhood, I just want you to know that's my neighborhood. Well, uh, actually, no, it's not. (laughs) Not your neighborhood. I'm glad you're there, too. Uh, I'm glad I was there, too, to pick up the kids that didn't get on your bus, you know? (laughs) Because at the end of the day, Rutledge, Georgia, is not our field. It's God's field. It just happens to be the field that He has put us in. I'm all for a sense of ownership in the community. I'm all for that sense of connection. I think we need that. But there must be a recognition that this is the Lord's harvest. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13 with me. Uh, Jesus used this same imagery when uh, when He told the parable of the wheat and the tares. We won't look at this whole parable this morning, but Matthew chapter 13, verse 37 and 38 is all we're going to read right now. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one." So what is the field? It's, you tell me, what is the field? The world. It's everywhere. What is the crop? It is the souls of men. Notice how Jesus says it here. The good seed, then in the parable... The uh, the uh, the farmer sowed a field, and his enemy came behind him and sowed weeds. And he said, "The good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the tares are the weeds. Those are those are the children of the wicked one." So the crop, quote unquote, if you will, is the souls of men. And every soul ultimately belongs to God. Every soul is subject to His ultimate sovereignty. Paul said in Acts 17, 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Every soul is subject to the sovereignty of God. Unfortunately, not every soul is brought into the heavenly barn, though. Only those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation are the wheat. Only those who are saved... The unbelievers are the weeds that will be gathered and destroyed. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist said of Jesus, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner or the silo, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Some people think, well, how can God send people to hell if he's a God of love? I've had had people tell me, to my face, I don't believe a God of love would send anyone to hell. That's cruel, they would say. You know, if you think that way, it shows that you've got it completely backwards. God is not cruel for punishing sin and the sinner. What would be cruel is if God allowed sin and death and pain, and misery to continue for all of eternity. That would be cruel. What was cruel was in the garden, when God had provided Adam and Eve with everything that they needed, and gave them just one stipulation, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And He warned them in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. What was cruel is when they believed Satan's lies... And they rebelled against a loving and a righteous and a holy God who only had their best interest at heart. That was cruel. God is not cruel for creating hell so that sin and its penalty could be ended for once uh, and all. God does not want anyone to go to hell. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word. Listen to this. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everyone to be saved, to repent of their sins, and have eternal life. And furthermore, God has done everything necessary for a person to be saved. Because God the Son came to this earth, was born, lived, died, was buried, and rose again so that we could be saved from our sins and have eternal life. And if anyone goes to hell, it is because they have rejected the loving Creator God of the universe. God owns the world. It is His harvest. Therefore, he is the one who sends the laborers into his harvest. Now, here's the command back in our text of Luke 10, verses 2 and 3. He sets it up by saying, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. We've got a big job to do. And we've got just a little bit of help to do it. So he commands his disciples, Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth laborers. Who are these laborers that Jesus says we should pray for? They are those who are already saved, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice He calls us laborers, not spectators. He does not call us critics or supervisors, but laborers, because the work of harvesting souls through preaching the gospel, is work. It is labor. And it is hard work at that. But it's important to note this, that as laborers, we have not been called to labor alone. Notice the plural that's used here. He would send forth laborers into his harvest. Not a laborer, but laborers. Many of them. And as we seek to reach the world with the gospel, as we ought to be, we are, should be encouraged that we're not working alone. We have been called, first of all, to work together with one another. Turn to Philippians chapter number 1. Philippians chapter number 1. Verse number 27 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I am come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Notice that last phrase, striving together. That implies a cooperation between believers as they work together and as they work hard together in order to share the gospel with the lost. We are to be striving together. Too often, the work of evangelism is done by a small handful of the body of Christ. Soul Winners, are almost like the vigilantes of the church. You know, they're the outliers. Or maybe we want to use a more positive example and say they're the the special forces. In our military, we have different uh, special forces, and they're an elite group of soldiers who are tasked with some of the most difficult jobs. You know, we appreciate them. And their willingness to go through the extra training and to give the extra uh, dedication in order to be a member of one of those elite forces. And sometimes we think that soul winners in the church are kind of like SEAL Team 6, you know? It's just the few. But that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be all working together. The Great Commission applies to all. And all should be involved in fulfilling it. Paul acknowledged this and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul recognized he had one part, somebody else had another part. But ultimately, through our cooperation, God works through us to save souls. We are co-laborers with each other. But not only are we co-laborers with each other, we're also co-laborers with God. What a blessing it is to know this, that as we seek to reach the world with the gospel, God is with us every step of the way. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gave the Great Commission there, He ended it by saying, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. God is with us. He is there empowering us, enabling us to do the work that he's called us to do. He's working in us and through us so that we might bring in the harvest. First Corinthians three, nine says, for we are laborers together with God. We are working with the Lord while we do the Lord's work. And as co-laborers with him, we are in the yoke with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You probably uh, heard Matthew 11 verses 28 and 30 before when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, a yoke represents hard work. Back when they used to use uh, horses and oxen and things like that for plowing and working field, you would take two or more animals and you would join them together in in a yoke. It was most of the time in Bible times, it was made out of a a big piece of wood and it was shaped in such a way that it would go around the necks of these animals and you would attach them together so that they, they couldn't go their separate ways. They had to work together. But there's another interesting fact about the yoke is Uh, is that the yoke could be adjusted so that one animal was pulling more of the load than the other. Sometimes you would have animals that were mismatched in size and strength, and if you had it 50-50, the weak animal would get tired and give out before the stronger animal. So you could actually adjust the yoke by by changing the position where the load point was. One animal would be pulling more and the other animal pulling less. You know, I'm so thankful that when we get in the yoke with Jesus, He only puts on us as much as we can bear. He never puts on us more than we, by His grace, can bear. And whenever we're in the yoke with Jesus, understand He's going to be carrying the most load. That's just how it works. He is our co-laborer. We work together with Him. But one of the things that is important for animals that are working in the yoke together is that they keep pace with one another. If you've got one animal that's trying to always run ahead of the other, it's going to be chaos. They have to learn to work together. Well, When it comes to our working together with the Lord, we should not expect Him to match our pace. We need to match His pace. We need to go at His speed. We need to not run ahead of Him nor lag behind Him, but keep pace with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we find that the work is actually easy. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you willing to get in the yoke with the Lord today? Are you willing to say, by the grace of God, I will get busy laboring to reach souls with the gospel? We must be willing to labor with Him to get the job done. Jesus said in John 9 and verse 4, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. You know, in Jesus' day, they didn't have electricity like we have today today that now enables people to work 24-7 if they want to. In Jesus' day when the sun went down, just about everybody was done for the day. Not because they were lazy, but because they couldn't see. (laughs) It was that simple. What Jesus was saying here is that that he had to work while it was day, while he had the opportunity, the limited amount of time that he had here on earth when he subjected himself to the human experience, he said, I have to be busy doing the work. And that is the attitude that we ought to have. I've got a limited amount of time to do what God has called me to do, and I must be doing it. I cannot afford to be lazy. The laborers in the harvest... It's you and I as we work together to reach souls. And what Jesus commands here is that we need to pray that God would send forth more laborers. Sometimes when we we look at this verse, we focus on the, the number of laborers. We need more of them, and that isn't a legitimate application here. But what I want to point out to you is that Jesus said we need to pray that the laborers would be sent forth. So it's not only the number of them, but also the location of them. Look, we have a lot of laborers already assembled in the barn today. The farm hands have shown up. But the question is, are we going to go forth and labor? We need to pray that God would send forth the laborers. And so while we're praying that, if we're going to be consistent we need to also be obeying that and going forth ourselves. It's easy to pray, God sends so-and-so over there. What's more difficult is for you and me to say, I'll go over there. So notice with me, number three, the location of the harvest. The laborers are sent forth. That is, they leave from the launching point. They, They go to another place and they do the work. They don't stay in the barn all day. They're there long enough to get their orders and get their supplies, and then they get out and they get busy. The majority of soul winning is supposed to take place out there, in the world at large. Evangelism must not be restricted to a church building, and it must not be restricted to designated events called evangelistic services. I'm not saying those are illegitimate. God can and God does use those. Sometimes the lost will come to church and if God brings them here, then we have a duty, we have a responsibility to preach the gospel to them. And we rejoice whenever someone from the outside comes here led by the Holy Spirit and they fall under conviction and are saved. Paul recognize that this happens on occasion. In 1 Corinthians 14, 24, he said, But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not or unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. So yes, that happens, they come in here. But we are not commanded to wait here for them to come to us. We are commanded to go out to them. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, Go ye into all the world. Not stay where you are, but go to them. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And there is not a single place on earth that is exempt from this command. Because remember, where is the harvest and what is the field? It is the world. And like Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1, 8. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. There is no place on this globe that is off limits to the followers of Jesus to take the gospel to them. What if a country is closed to the gospel? What if they don't allow Christians in there? Christians still have a responsibility to share the gospel there. What if persecution would arise? What if they would be arrested? What if they would be killed? Christians still have a responsibility to get the gospel there. Many modern churches, I I think it is true that most modern church ministries in America have a strong program of internal ministry. Ministering to the people who are already there. But they have a weak or a non-existent program of outreach. And if we're going to Reach the world, we have to reach out to the world. To use the barn analogy, there's a lot of time that's spent in the barn, but little spent in the field. Again, we do not minimize the importance of gathering regularly, we've been commanded to do that. If we're going to be fit to work in the fields, we cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But we need to be meeting and exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But if all we do is gather together in the barn, we're missing a very important point. If the farmer and his employees, if all they ever did was come to the barn and wash the tractors and do routine maintenance and paint the barn up so it looked very nice, they wouldn't have a job very long. Because unless you're out there planting and reaping, you're not going to be able to sustain. We've got to plow, we've got to plant, we've got to cultivate if we're ever going to harvest. If a farmer acted like many churches do, he would go bankrupt in one season. And we are in danger of spiritual bankruptcy if we do not get busy in the fields. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, "'Say not ye there yet four months, then cometh harvest?' Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. You know, business experts tell us that for a, a business to succeed, they they need to achieve about a ten to fifteen percent annual growth rate in order to be able to be a successful business. It's been interesting that in the years that the Lord's allowed me to be a, a pastor, that I have seen in the churches that I've pastored, both churches, that it was true that we had to maintain at least about a 10 to 15% addition annually just to have the same average attendance. Why, why is that? Well, you have things that happen just naturally in the course of life. People pass away. People have to move. Sadly, people... Stop coming and go to other churches for various reasons. And you have this, this uh, natural loss, if you will, that if you're not growing at all, you're actually shrinking. And just to maintain, I personally have seen, requires about 10 to 15% growth. I, I just saw an article this morning from a, um, a group called Church Answers, and uh, this article estimated that a church needs to grow 30% annually just to maintain. Now, everything you know, is different for every church in a different area. But here's the common denominator is that in order to survive, there has to be some growth. If there is no growth, then you're actually dying off. We see this too often in churches. Even uh, most recently during COVID, there were a number of churches I personally know of that shut down as a result of that because for years they had not been growing. They were just kind of at best staying, staying steady and plateauing, but many of them were slowly shrinking, and, and COVID was just too much. Their, their congregation couldn't bear it. They were down to so few, and they had to shut the doors, and that happens all too often. We need to be growing, and that means seeing people added to the church on a regular basis. There are two types of church growth. Both are good. The first type is what I call old growth, and that is when God directs people who are already saved to come and join the church, and we are grateful for that kind of growth. I and my family are here because of that kind of growth. I'm grateful for that kind of growth. Many of you are here for the very same reason. God led you here, and I believe that that was in part an answer to the prayer that God would send forth laborers. We rejoice whenever the Lord adds to the church in this way. But there's another kind of growth, and that is what I call new growth. And that is when people from the local community are saved, baptized, and added to the church so that they could be discipled. What a blessing it is to see that. Sometimes we see this new growth when the children of adults and families in our church are saved and baptized. What a blessing it is. Every time one of our young people gets to that point in their life when they understand they're a sinner and they need a Savior and they make the decision to trust Christ, oh, we rejoice in that. We praise the Lord for it. But you know, there are many more souls that need to be saved other than the children of Christian parents. There are souls out there who have no connection to our church yet who need the gospel. Even here in rural Rutledge, Georgia, there are people all around us who need to hear the gospel. Many of them have heard it in one form or another, but have not yet believed. Many of them have never heard a clear presentation of it. And they need to hear it from us. Don't assume because we live in the South. We're in the Bible Belt. Don't assume that everybody knows who Jesus is and knows what the gospel is. Don't assume because there's a church on every corner that everybody has had a fair opportunity. Don't assume that just because we've knocked on their door one time in the past that our obligation has been fulfilled. No, we have a continual obligation to spread the gospel to all that we can. There are a lot of people around us that need Jesus. What are we doing to reach them? How much effort are we expending to bring in the harvest that is there? We need to go out and labor in the field by preaching the gospel, by praying the Lord to bless us with the fruit of souls saved. Turn to Acts chapter 2 as we close. Acts chapter 2. There are a lot of people today that claim to be church growth experts and they've got systems and programs that they've developed and packaged neatly that you can purchase and you can implement in your church and it's guaranteed that your church will grow by such and such a percent in 2023. Look, I'm all for organizing, planning and executing our plans to do things decently and in order, I'm all for that. But you know what the biblical model of church growth boils down to? It's what we read here in Acts chapter 2 verse 47. It says of the very first New Testament church that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That is the biblical model of church growth. Christians, disciples of Jesus, when we go out and we share the gospel and people are saved and added to the church, that's it. It's the Great Commission. The disciples go and preach the gospel. The sinners are saved, baptized, and added to the church. And then what happens is they learn to be disciples themselves. And so they learn to go out And they begin to share the gospel. And the cycle continues. And when this is carried out biblically and properly, the result is exponential growth. That the number of believers is not just added to, but eventually multiplied. But if the disciples won't leave the barn and get out and work the fields, then the process is stopped. If we're going to be sowing and growing, here's what it boils down to. We've got to get going. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I get concerned for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. That the longer we're saved, the more callous we become to the lost people who are around us. Let me just say, if that is the case in our hearts, we're doing something wrong. Because Jesus saw the multitudes and was moved with compassion. How can we say we are following Him if we have no compassion for the lost? How can we say we're following Him if we're not willing to go to where the lost are and share the gospel so that they might be saved? Jesus said, As the Father sent me, even so send I you. He's not asking anything of us that He was not himself willing to do he left heaven to come to earth so that we could be saved friend are you going or are you just spending all your time enjoying the barn it's great to come to the barn get what you need but you've got to get out in the fields and get to work Maybe the Lord has spoken to you today about the need to be going. And as you are going, sharing the gospel with people. Here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you today to take a moment and talk to the Lord of the harvest, God Almighty, in prayer and say... Lord, send me. I want to be a laborer. I want to be busy doing the work. God, would you use me? Show me how I can be the most effective worker in your field. Are you willing to do that today?